Hi. All right. As Pastor Justin said, you know, we're to be ready in season and out of season. The bullpen was called early this morning, but that's all right. Because the Lord knows all things and we can trust Him. So I'm excited to bring God's Word this morning. Uh, It's just a one-off sermon. We're going to be looking at Psalm 15. And as you turn there, let's pray for one another. And we're going to spend some time in prayer. And seek the Lord, not just for our time in His Word, but also for our brothers and sisters. Uh, Particularly, and I just want to just make note of this, particularly praying for the Ewans. uh, As Tom's dad went home to be with the Lord early this week in a very surprising and unexpected way. The funeral service will be at the end of next week. So please pray for the Ewan family. On the other side of news, there was good news. Mike and Jane welcomed a new little boy. So they now have three little boys this week. And so praise God for a healthy baby that's home with them now. And so let's pray for them and continue to encourage. And then as Pastor Justin was saying, there are a number of folks sick and maybe been exposed or sick and Thankfully, most people that have gotten sick, mild symptoms have gotten better in due time. So let's continue to pray and reach out to one another. Let us seek to build one another up, even in these really uncertain, weird times. But as we do, remember that Christ is holding us fast and that we can stand on him. So let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you for who you are. We pray to you because of who you are. You are our rock, our salvation. You are the truth and the life. You are the one who is the, knows the beginning from the end. You hold time in your hand. It's been said that, God, you don't drive an ambulance. You are not surprised by events, even when we are. We don't always understand why you allow things to happen. But because you have proven yourself over and over again, we can trust you. Even in this way, we lift up Tom and Sunmi and and the rest of you and family. Tim, Noah, Joe, Dan, Lizzie. Tom's brother and sister and, and mother. We pray that you would sustain them by your grace. I thank you for the, the hope in the resurrection that they have. That death has lost its sting because the grave is empty. Because Christ has defeated it. And that Tom's father is face to face with his Lord. We praise you for that. I pray that the resurrection would be our hope and our joy and the thing that we cling to even when things are uncertain. I pray that your grace and your spirit would comfort them with a comfort that only can come from you because you are the God of all comfort. And Father, I pray for us as a community and a local body that we would encourage them and encourage one another. There are others that have, have lost and, and experienced grief and, and grief in large ways like death, but also loss of work or friends or just kids losing school time with friends, that there's grief there. And I pray that we would encourage one another. Point one another to uh, where our hope finds a sure and steady anchor. Father, we praise you even for good news. For the birth of Daniel. Boy, we thank you for bringing Jane safely through delivery. We pray that even as they now adjust to having three little boys at home, that you would sustain them and encourage them. Father, we pray for those that are sick, 
those that are fearful, those that are overwhelmed, we ask that you would meet them, bring your healing touch, comfort them, and encourage them. Father, we ask that you would arise and help us. Even now as we come to your word, would your spirit minister to your people in this next little bit of time that we would behold you afresh and that as we sit in your presence, our hearts would be warmed. In fact, our hearts would burn in our chest as we behold Christ. We ask that you would do this for your good, for your glory and our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please open it. Um, If you have a phone, please turn it on. We're going to be walking through Psalm 15. And I do think uh, uh, it's really important to just have it in front of you. The the way that um, the, the structure of the sermon is pretty easy. It asks a question and then it answers the question. All right, so that, that's how, where we're going, but I, I would invite you to open God's word. And I'll, let me read it. It's a psalm of David. He writes through the, through the Holy Spirit, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The question is this, Who can commune with the Lord? Who can be at home in God's house? I don't know what your thoughts about heaven or being in God's presence are like. Uh, We need to put out harps and clouds and lots of just endless singing forever and ever for those that don't like singing forever and ever. Some people do, and that's fine. But uh, some of us go, is there anything else other than singing? So what is it? I remember watching this video of these, these kids. Um, uh, their, their parents got them. This is many years ago. I think it was like a, a Nintendo Wii or something for, for Christmas. And it was, there were three boys. They were all about middle school and early high school age. And the father, they, 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 they videoed this, this, this opening of the gift. And the kids, they, all three of the boys, they opened it together. And when they saw what it was... They all, like, they, they dropped the present. No one touched it. And they ran around like pinballs around the house screaming in pure excitement. The thing that they had hoped for had exploded their hearts with joy. Psalm 16 at the end says, At God's right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's what God invites us into, pleasures forevermore, that our hearts would constantly be bursting each day afresh with new joys because he is infinite and he invites us into that. So how do we get there? Is there a more important question? I don't know about you, I'm a hack, but I love philosophy. I think it's wonderful. I think it's really interesting to think about ideas that are way bigger than me. 
But again, I'm, I'm not a great philosopher, but, but any philosophy that is worth its salt asks this question, what is the good life? H- how do I live the good life? That's what philosophy is about. How do I live this good life? And there's no more significant question than this. How can I commune with the one who has made me? We must ask, everyone has to ask this question. Because the reality is we're all living this out one way or the other. And so we're called to ask this question. On what basis can we know and be in the presence of God? And so David asked this question, but he doesn't do so of his neighbor. Hey, Bill, how do we commune with the Lord? He doesn't just take a popular opinion poll. Rather, he goes to the Lord himself. He says, God, how do I know you? It's such a significant question that there can be no speculation to the answer. We shouldn't guess on this. We we want a firm foundation. And so that's verse 1. How do I be at home in the house of God? As Charles Spurgeon once said. You know, I like going to museums. Uh, My my friend... uh, my friend Craig, when his little boy, they would, when, when they don't want him to touch something, they go, Jet, museum hands. And he has to walk like this, right? They, you know, we walk to the museum, not touching anything. And if you get too close, we've been in museums where our kids have gotten too close and the security guards run and kind of shuffle you away from the Picasso. Why? Because it's valuable. And you're not to touch so you don't break, right? But when you're at home, in your home, and you sit on your chair, you're not really comfortable in a museum. You're not meant to be. You're meant to look. But if you're at home, you can rest easy. How do we rest easy in God's presence? That's what this is a description of. And so what we're going to do is we're we're actually going to walk through this passage multiple times. We won't be here all morning, I promise. But we're going to walk through this and kind of look at what David is showing us through the Holy Spirit. He says, verse 2, how do, how do we live at home in the Lord? It's one who is, walks blamelessly, does what is right, and speaks the truth in his heart. B- blamelessly means that he walks according to God's commands. You realize that the Psalms are a hymn book. These are, the, uh, these are songs that the Israelites sang, and they weren't just random songs. But they were songs that internalized the truth of God's word. So you might know that there are, there are five books of the Psalms. Some scholars think that this coincides with the five books of the Torah, the first five books, or, or the, uh, the first five books, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Old Testament. That, that, that in other words, the Psalms help unpack in this visceral, emotional way that imprints on our hearts the things that God has commanded. And so that this helped them to understand what God has instructed that they may walk in them. And so they put them in song. We all know this. It's easier to memorize a song than it is text. And so to walk blamelessly means to walk in step with God's law. It's a poetic way to communicate this truth. Over the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about this. There was a bunch of discussion in, in your community groups, if you were part of it, that we distinguish between a faultless and blameless. 
This doesn't mean that we are perfect, but that we, that rather that we are blameless, that we are pure in our intentions to walk in the things of the Lord. David was, if you read David's account, he is not a perfect man. He is not flawless or faultless. But he is blameless in that his intentionality of his heart walked in accord with God's law, his instruction, his way. And that therefore, that this blamelessness is measured against God's law. It's not some subjective measure, but rather the object, objective truth of God's word. And so to, to walk blamelessly is to walk in God's way. To be truthful in speech is also a, refle- a reflection of walking and acting blamelessly. That is without pretense or self-righteousness. This is walking God's way in purity. It means to be sincere in speech and peaceful in what is said. Uh, one, one, one guy, Derek Kidner, says this, it means sure and trustworthy in our speech, not merely correct. What this man says is one with what he is. In other words, he's not a hypocrite. Out of their, ha- their heart, their mouth speaks, Truly. It's not lip service. It isn't saying what people want you to say, but rather it actually flows from who they are. This is so that their speech is truthful, not just that it says the right things, but it actually is sincere and and, and seeks to bring peace, wholeness to the world. So that is to walk blamelessly in doing what what is right and to speak the truth. These things go together, that we walk and speak as one in step with God. Verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. James says the tongue is a fire. It consumes and one of the primary ways it does so is through slander and gossip. Have you ever been on the receiving end? I have. The tongue of of a man who dwells with the Lord, however, seeks to preserve and honor honor others with his tongue. Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is better than riches. The one fit to dwell with the Lord honors others and preserves their name, protects their reputation. I want to say a word about gossip because I think it gets railroaded a lot and thrown out falsely. Gossip is not sharing a concern or a critique. It doesn't, you can, you can ha- share a concern or critique and not be gossiping. Gossiping is a, is, a, is a malicious way to undercut someone, to rip them, to, 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 to take their reputation away. It isn't to share something that needs to be shared. It's actually to maliciously do harm, to undercut them for your own value, for your own good, for your own advancement. And so the one who does not slander is one who who seeks to preserve the other, not throw them in the muck. Then it's not just our tongue, but even our action. The, The one who does no evil, the one dwelling with the Lord does not seek to injure to exploit, to use, to mislead his neighbor. It doesn't mean I'm just not mean to other people. 
Rather, it's I don't use them and take advantage of them. Uh, a number of years ago, I went to Los Angeles with a, a friend. And I didn't really like it. I'm sorry for those that really like LA. Northern California is way better. But there's, um, amen over there, sister. I got you. There's, um, so, but LA, what was interesting about LA is everywhere you went, everyone was, had only been there for three or four months. You start talking to people, oh, I moved here from Maryland. Oh, I moved here from North Carolina. What are you doing? Oh, I'm try trying to get into movies. You know, everyone's trying to look famous. And so it was interesting, even in conversations with, with a nobody like me, you realize that people would often kind of look around the corner. Is there a famous person coming around the corner? In other words, is there someone here that can advance me? Because you're clearly not doing that. I don't know if you've ever treated people that way. Or you've been treated that way. I can't really, people are friends with you up until a point, you can't, they, they, they no longer value what you can add to them. And so they, eh, I need someone that can kind of advance me. Might be in social circumstances, it may be in political ones, it may be in corporate ones. But one of the ways that we do evil to our neighbor is using and exploiting them just for our own advantage. One who then does not pick up a reproach. We don't, I don't know if you've used the word reproach in a sentence last week. I didn't. It's not a word, it's an older word. But it means this. It carries with it social shame and reproach and rejection that is highly odious. It says, someone says this, it's, it's comprised of a person's, it, it compromises a person's participation in society. That was a lot of P's. It compromises a person's participation in society. It, it robs them of access to the basic structures of life. John Calvin says it this way, when anyone is the bearer of invented falsehoods, those who reject them leave them, as it were, to fall in the ground. While on the contrary, those who propagate and publish, like, publish them from one person to another are by, are by an expressive form of speech said to raise them up. In other words, there's been some sort of uh, label attached to somebody. To not pick up the approach is to not allow that label to define that person. But to pick up that reproach is to identify them with that, that person always. So that is always the first thing you know them by. Let me give you an example. When I was in like seventh grade, there was a girl... I would just say her name was Renee. She had an accident in middle school. Didn't make it to the bathroom. Okay? Now, for a 7th or 8th grader, that's kind of embarrassing. By kind of a lot embarrassing. She was nice. But all through high school, past graduate, she was Look, I still remember this story. And that was kind of like, what are the, oh, do you remember when she did that? And as a result, it, it moved her down the social ladder. It, it, it isolated her. Oh, there is this problem with this person because of that. And if you watch any political discourse, that's exactly what happens. We throw this label, oh, do you know what they are, right? I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're on Twitter at all, there's no nuance at all. 
So if you don't agree with someone, you can't like anything that they say because everything they say is tainted as a result. This is allowing that reproach to shade every part of that relationship, every part of that other person. And as a result, what you're doing is, in other words, this is cancel culture. This is canceling them from society. It's to wound, it's to provoke, it's to discredit them. It's, in other words, let me say this, it's character assassination. It's picking up something discreditable in the sense of raking up something unnecessarily. For who's good? Mine. Who is on the receiving end of it? Them, and they go down. So the one who is made at home in God's house uses his tongue to bless, uses his actions to do good, uses his relationships to welcome, not exclude. Number four, verse four. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. In short... What David is saying, the one who is at home with God hates what God hates and loves what God loves. Psalm 1, if you have your Bible, turn to there. Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the one who, who walks not in the counts of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked are those who reject God's righteous decrees. They hinder and do violence to others. They mock those doing righteousness. Their will, is, is, their will at the center is, is against God's will. They praise what is contrary to God. Uh, Paul writes this in Romans. They not only do what is contrary to God and his decrees, but they give approval to those who practice it. That's Romans 1.32. And therefore, to overlook wickedness is to condone it in one sense. So those who, whose eye a vile person is despised means that it's not that I'm just hating another person. It's saying that is wicked and it stands against the goodness of God. It stands against God's perfect way. And so I despise that because it is an affront against the very goodness, holiness, and perfection of God. But I honor those who fear the Lord. This means to honor and give praise to what is praiseworthy and honorable. God's way brings about flourishing. It's not just the goody-two-shoes way of life. It is the wise way of life. So this isn't meant to puff us up in arrogance. Rather, it, it is engagement with those living lives counter to God's decrees that we then should see in God's people a different priority system. Look, our culture celebrates folly. I mean, just go to TMZ.com or don't. 
Go to like the New York Post, page six, or don't. Like we see how, how foolishness is celebrated in our culture. Instead, those who dwell with the Lord rightly honor and esteem those whose priorities are rightly ordered. We should say, hey, that is a beautiful way of life. And we should honor that. And those who are walking away from God, this isn't, again, this isn't arrogant or self-righteous, but rather, hey, that way takes you away from the, the source of true life. That's why Jesus is bold in his confrontation with evil. He doesn't hate those people. He's saying, do you not get it? You're walking contrary to life. And that's how we would, we would love what God loves and hate what God hates because the way that God loves, it brings us into life. And so we, we hate what God's hate. The person who's at home with God loves what God loves. And he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is, this is a weird way to phrase this, but it, what it simply means is it's a person of integrity. It's one who lets their yes be yes and their no be no. Uh, if you've met me for like two minutes, you know that I'm an extrovert. And I love, like, being around a big group of people is like plugging in my battery. I get supercharged by it. And, but the problem of being an expert is you never have time to hang out with everybody that you want to hang out with. Uh, a couple years after I graduated college, my friend and I went back to our college together to listen to a lecture. I was in uh, my college town for a total of maybe 48 hours is probably generous. It may have been... 30. Okay, so I was there for a very brief time. And I'm walking around campus, and there were still several people that I knew. And everyone was, we, I was excited to see them. They were excited to see me. And, and I was walking with my friend. We were going on our way to lecture. And, and these people would say, hey, how long are you in town? Oh, I'm here for the night, maybe a little bit tomorrow. Hey, let's, let's get together. Let's get together. Let's get together. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. And my, my friend Jeff, who is such a truth teller. He said, do you have any intention to hanging out with any of those people that you said you were going to hang out with? I said, no. He goes, why don't you just tell them no? It's like, because I want to. <laughs> I know I can't, but I want to. And he's like, well, it's more loving for you just to tell them I don't have time. That was such an eye-opening thing to me. This is someone who swears to their own hurt and does not change. You know, we all make plans. We put them on the calendar, and then something comes up. Hey, I really want to go do that thing instead. You know, if you have to help somebody move, and you're like, oh, I've committed to helping somebody move, or you've committed to drive someone to the airport, those are objectively not always fun things. But then somebody comes, hey, we're all going down to the beach. Who would not want to go to the beach and rather help somebody move? The answer is no one. Everyone wants to go to the beach, at least if you're me. So, but here's the deal. If we made a commitment, we say, hey, let's stick to that commitment. I love Pastor Justin because one of the things that he often does in our elder team is like, no, we, we promised to do this. We're going to do it. Today was a great example. Hey, what are we going to do today? We have to call an audible. Things are in motion. What are we going to do? 
Let's gather because we've committed to gathering. And trust the Lord. And so let us be people of, it means to be a person of integrity. That's what this means. And lastly, the answer is verse uh, uh, verse 5, A and B. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. There's bankers, there's people that work on Wall Street here. What this is talking about is much more about like the payday lenders, like predatory lenders. There's, to, to lend at interest is really about to exploit those who are at a disadvantage, who need money. This is helping with a quid pro quo attitude. There's an exploitation happening here. That's what the do not lend at interest means. It means don't take advantage of somebody when they're, when, they're at, when they're most vulnerable. And don't seek to, disadvantage, uh, to, to, to use your resources as an advantage for you to the detriment of the broader society by giving bribes against the innocent. This kind of clears my name and say, hey, he's going to be my scapegoat. Or she's going to be my scapegoat. I'm going to use what God's given me to benefit me and I'm going to kick them down because eh, they can take the fall. The one dwelling with God loves true justice and will not take advantage or unfairly weight the scales to get ahead. In other words, they're honest and they're content. David ends this sermon, or this this psalm with, the one doing these things dwells with the Lord. The answer could be taken purely moralistically in in a performance matter. But what we see from this question and answer is something shocking. When the question is asked, who who can dwell with God? We do not see a to-do list, or we ought not to see one. Rather, what is shown is that the answer has much more to do with, with, with being than doing. The answer centers around who are we in our character? What flows for out from the inside? The reason for this is because these traits highlight the very character of God. It's not just what God does, it's who God is. David, in his inquiry into who may dwell in the presence of God, it becomes clear that the standards are not measured horizontally between a woman and a woman or a man and a man. It's not whether that I'm a better person than Jim over there. Rather, the standard is a divine standard. And that's what we see as we walk. I want to walk through this passage again quickly and show you this is exactly who God is. In verse 2, God is righteous. He is and does good. Mark 10, 18 says, No one is good but God alone. If you have a Bible, quickly turn to James chapter 1. This is one of my absolute favorite verses in all of the Bible. James chapter 1, verse 17 
Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the very fountainhead of goodness. He creates. He gives instruction for our flourishing. There is no darkness in him at all. He is not tempted by sin. He is and he does good, and no one is truly good but God alone. But more than that, in verse 3 and 4, he blesses, he forgives, he invites, he judges rightly. He has set his affection on people. He sings over them even when they grumble, when they run from him, when they sin against him. He has invited us to know him and to enjoy him. He doesn't exclude us. He doesn't kick us when we're down. He does, not, he does not use us, but rather invites us into his very presence that we would know the fullness of his joy. Do you realize that the Bible has disclosed who God is not to keep us at a distance, but to move towards us? God does not say, hey, here's who I am. And they go, good luck. Rather, he has revealed himself in Scripture that we would know him. How kind of God. How merciful of God. He blesses. He forgives. He invites. He judges and sees rightly. Going back to that Psalm 1 passage. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This is the way of life, he says. He says, I'm inviting you to know this way. And he judges rightly. His scales are not tipped. But they're, they're honest and true. Verse 4. For B, he swears to his own hurt. He's trustworthy. God is a trustworthy God. He is a source of all that is true. And he's the one who's able, because he's in control of all things, he's able to make good on all that he promises. In the spiritual discipleship class, we were, as a group, the past couple weeks, we were reading through First and Second Timothy together, along with some other things. And there is this beautiful passage, I, this little poem that, that, that Paul breaks out in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. He says, And the saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also reign, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, here, listen to this, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. If he were not faithful, he is not God, and we should not trust him. But he is the ever-faithful one. Romans 3, verse 4 says, Let God be true, even though everyone else were declared a liar. God is truthful. He swears to his own hurt. He keeps his promises. Just read the Old Testament, and you'll see time and time and time and time again how he keeps his promises. Dear friends, look at your own life. Flip through and go, has God kept his promise? Not has he kept me happy in the way that I want. Has he kept his promise? The answer will always be yes. 
verse 5. He's a provider and defender of the weak. We so often fail in this in so many ways, myself being chief among them. But God is the protector of widows and of the marginalized. He is father to the fatherless. He looks on those in need and he moves to them. Pastor Justin read this this morning from Isaiah 42. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. God sees those who suffer and he doesn't squash them out and go, you're insignificant. Rather, he defends them. He provides for them. He moves towards them. When we see the perfections of God's character, it is clear that our, our character pales in comparison to his. So the answer to David's question then, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Who in themselves is at home in God's house? It's at very least not you and not me. At least not on our own merit. And here is where the benefit of having the full revelation of Scripture comes into view. We know that though we cannot stand before this awesome and perfect God, we know that there is another attribute of God at play. It is that he is a God full of loving kindness and mercy. He is a God who acts to save, to rescue, and to redeem. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. One of the most important parts, I think, of the Old Testament, actually. Moses has, has asked God to show him his glory in the, in, the, in the wilderness. And God says something remarkable. He says, I will show you my goodness. His goodness is an expression of his glory. And he hides Moses in the rock because to see Moses face to face, face, to face would crush him. To see his full goodness and glory on full display. But, but God passes, through, uh, passes by, and what, here is what Moses heard and what we have in God's word. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, but will, who no, will no means clear the guilty. David realizes that, you know, what I didn't tell you earlier was that this psalm was often sung by the people of Israel as they went to the temple to worship, as they sojourned up, where they would make sacrifices with animals to atone for their sin because they knew themselves they were, they were guilty. They couldn't sojourn on their own. But these sacrifices could never ultimately cleanse them from their sin. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. 
We need something better, and that better one has come in the person of Jesus to do away with the, with the system forever, that he himself would pay the debt that we deserve, that we can truly, that we can truly make ourselves at home in the presence of God. Jesus lived the perfect life. He was the perfect example of Psalm 1. He is the one in, in our passage in Psalm 15, he's the one who has done all these things. And Jesus restores all that was lost in the fall, that, that dwelling with God, being at home in his presence, in what we were made for, and our hearts long to be. Do you not see? He walked truly blamelessly. He always did what was right. He spoke the truth in his heart. He was sincere in his speech. He did not seek to exclude people and cut them down, but rather spoke the truth that invited them in. Even people who did evil, and he offered forgiveness to them. Remember the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a crook, and Jesus moves to him. And he says, Zacchaeus... Today's salvation has come to your house. And that transformed Zacchaeus inside out. He became generous. God moved towards Zacchaeus in a way to forgive, to restore, to redeem. And he did good to his neighbors. He did not pick up a reproach. You remember the, the woman that was caught in adultery. Instead of encouraging, he moves and says, He who without sin cast the first stone. He seeks to protect. He, he hated evil and loved what was good and pointed people to the good constantly. Dear brothers and sisters, is there a more clear vision of swearing to your hurt and not changing than when we look at the cross? God promised salvation and Jesus took the ultimate hurt upon himself that we may truly have new life. That promise was not an easy one, but he went followed it out, followed it through. And he was content and he was honest and he dealt with those who were weak and weary and, and, and cut off and he gathered them around. And, and as, 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 a, as a hen gathers her chicks, that's how he cares for his people. He doesn't exploit them. Remember, he's gentle and lovely, full of compassion. That's who Jesus is. He died for us because we fail in every one, of this, every one of these categories. But he was perfect in each one. So he took our place, took the, went to the cross bearing our shame, the wrath that we deserve, so that we can be welcomed back into the presence of God and make our home with him and be at peace so that we can stand and not be moved. You see that Jesus then is our unshakable refuge. He is our unshakable Savior. That old hymn, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. This is what this psalm points us to. It points us to Jesus, who was the one who's, who from his very being exuded the character of God because he was God himself. 
but he came to rescue and redeem us, that we, in him, can stand before God and not be moved. So as I close, what does this mean for us as we move forward? Three very quick things. One, look honestly. What are you relying on for your standing before God? Friend, if it's anything other than the finished work of Jesus, your work, your career, your goodness, your family, the hours that you spend in this place, you have no ground to stand on before a perfect and holy God. But you still have this longing to know God. And we often try to fill it with all these other things. This will give me meaning. This will be the good life. This will give me purpose. But they never ultimately satisfy. They always fall, up, fall short because you were meant to know God and dwell in his presence. And Jesus brings us to him, closes that gap for us, that we would be full of joy, that we would know the depth of joy, often now in part, but then in full. But what are you relying on this morning? And I invite you to look honestly at your life. Number two, live intentionally. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have been brought back to God as, as a child of God, redeemed, restored, renewed, then let's live in obedience through Christ. Not to earn God's favor, but because this is the way of true life. This is the way of flourishing. We can walk in this way, not to earn God's favor, but because we already have it. This isn't performing to make God happy with us, but it's a response. It's to walk as those who have been made alive. Do you not see that this psalm helps us to balance being too casual and too uptight? A lot of us, you know, if you've grown up in a very grace-centric church like myself, and I really lean heavy towards grace. I lean away from, like, the heavy-handedness. I love grace. I love, love, love grace. But that can lead us to be really casual and flippant about God. Go, eh, doesn't really matter. Oh, forgive me. This actually helps us. Hey, this is actually what God requires. This is where flourishing is. But it also frees us from being so constrained and so bogged down. I'm never going to be perfect. No, you're not. But thank God for Jesus. That he's freed me from my own unworthiness and made me worthy in himself. And where we struggle, we're invited to go to him and say, help me, God. Help me, Jesus. You know how hard this is, and you've finished it for me. So help me to walk in your way. So live on, look honestly, live intentionally, rejoice confident, constantly. If you're made alive in Christ, we're enabled to enter joyfully into the dwelling place of the Lord. I invite you to freely come in God's presence, not as the shameful and unwanted slave of God, but as a child of God. One who Jesus sings your praises and, and, and proclaims to the congregation, the writer of Hebrews says. He proclaims the, the name of his congregation in the presence of everyone. Jesus is not ashamed of you, dear friend. 
He says, you're my pride and joy. I love you. I welcome you. So that we can come into his presence, not, but joyfully, honestly, boldly, honestly, truly. This means that we can bring our sin, our struggle, our fears, our joys, our dreams, our frustrations. And he doesn't go, hey, just the good parts of you are coming, come close. He invites all of us to himself to know him. So that we can rejoice because not only does he know us, he sees us. And he invites all of us to himself. I'll add a bonus one for the end. As a result, we can stand confidently. If we are in Christ, if he is our unshakable savior, we can stand confidently knowing that Christ has finished what we couldn't. And God welcomes us to his presence to know him and delight in him. Let's pray. Father, Left to ourselves, no one can stay in your presence. We so often return back to our old selves, seeking to advance ourselves, to make much of ourselves. Forgive us. Lord, I pray that even as we consider the psalm this morning, that we would see your purity, your holiness, your majesty. We would see where we have fallen short. But in light of both of those things, Lord, I pray that we would see the beauty of Jesus who has done all these things for us because we couldn't, who was in his being all these things and when we were not. And he offers them to us that we in him can stand and not be moved in your presence. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would live intentionally, and rejoice constantly and live confidently because of Jesus, our unshakable Savior. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.